as we concentrate on the Lord's Supper, I, I thought it'd be helpful to, to actually preach on the Last Supper. And in Luke chapter 22, we find Jesus' words to the disciples on that last night before he died. And in chapter 22, verse 14, it says this. When the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when you have taken the cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when you have taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way he took the cup after he had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with me on the table, is with mine on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. They began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. I ran across an article about a man named Ian Durkin. He was 42 years old. He had a, a partner named Adele Riley, and, and she had a, some, some kids of her own, and, and he had adopted them. And he went to the dentist because he, a, a tooth fell out, and the dentist uh, gave him the advice to go immediately to the hospital. And it had taken, you know, his partner a long, long time to convince him to go to the dentist in the first place. And he just refused to go to the doctor. Finally, uh, you know, even though he believed the problem was not serious, nine days later, Mr. Durkin was found unconscious in his bed after the infection had spread through his body. And his partner finally rang, I guess it's 999, that's 9911 for us, 999 in uh, Great Britain, and the paramedics tried to resuscitate him before taking him to the hospital where he was pronounced dead. The hearing was told that Mr. Durkin could have survived if he had just taken simple antibiotics. And a fascinating statement that his partner said, uh, she said this, he was crying out in pain, but she couldn't persuade him to go to the doctors or the hospital. He was stubborn like that pretty crazy story, pretty ridiculous, right? It's very rare that somebody shows so much stubbornness. And there's something within all of us that says, I don't, I don't like to be told that I'm doing something wrong. I don't like to be told that there's something wrong with me. It's, it's almost like in our hearts and in our, uh, deep in, in, in our, our, I don't know, just a depth of who we are, that we just do not like somebody telling us that we're falling short in some way. And obviously I'm preaching to the choir who is here for the second time in a day hearing about the word of God, you know, how it exposes our sin and we, we gladly submit to God's word. But there's even a sense in which we ourselves struggle with hearing areas where we struggle in. We don't wanna be told that we're wrong about something. And 
what we're going to see tonight is that Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper so that we have a continual checkup for our hearts. And that's exactly why he institutes the Lord's Supper because he wants us to continually be exposed to the doctor, the Lord's Supper, we can call him Dr. Lord's Supper, and that he wants to examine, Jesus wants us to examine our hearts and to be able to be completely devoted to him. As you see here in, in chapter 22, verses 14 through 23, we're gonna see, we're gonna see three checkups that the Lord's Supper has for us and how it exposes our hearts. Three checkups we can consistently get from the Lord's Supper. And the first thing the, the Lord's Supper exposes, the first checkup that the Lord's Supper does for us is it checks our desires. It checks our desires. Look at verse 14. He says, And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. There's just something about meals and having a meal with somebody. And Jesus was truly longing for this meal in particular. The Bible tells us even that he earnestly desired to eat this Passover. For as long as his life, as long as he lived, Jesus longed and looked forward to this very dinner because this dinner was gonna be a dinner like no other. It was gonna bring the end of the old covenant and introduce the new. It was gonna bring the end of the Passover looking back to what God had done for the Israelites in the Exodus. And it was going to institute a meal that the church would have on a continual basis, looking back now to what Jesus did on the cross. This is a very special meal. This is the last God-ordained Passover. He says, he says here, he says, before I suffer. Notice, notice those words, before I suffer. Here he is sitting at the table knowing that tomorrow he's going to die. And he's been saying it for, for a while now. He's been talking about the fact that he was gonna die. Not only did he know he was gonna die, but he also knew the way he was gonna die. Do you remember in, in John 3, right before John 3, 16 and John 3, 14, he said, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. That tells you that Jesus already knew the way he was gonna die, where he was gonna die. No one took Jesus' life. He gave it up. He was not a victim, but willingly offered his life in complete agreement with and in submission to the Father. He died according to the divine plan, orchestrating every act of both enemies and friends to accomplish God's pur purpose. He would become the perfect Passover lamb to the point where John, as he sees him, John the Baptist would see him and he would say, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Think about it for a second. The cross was not a defeat. Every once in a while there's a song that says the cross was a defeat but the resurrection was a victory. The cross wasn't really a defeat, was it? It was a victory. Jesus knew he would die. He knew it was the plan of God 
plan of the Trinity before the foundations of the earth for Jesus to come and die on the cross. He knew exactly how he would die, where he would die. And here he is on the night before he's going to die, on the night before he knows how he is going to die and is earnestly desiring this moment. The cross is looming in front of him for every conscious moment of his life. We know, in fact, the Bible only tells us about one phrase. We only see one phrase of, of Jesus before the age of 30. And it's when he's 12, he's in the temple. He already knows who his father is. He already knows where he belongs. He already knows what his mission is. In every conscious moment of his life, he knows that this day is coming. This very meal is coming. And he looked forward to it for a, a long time. And I wonder, what's he looking forward to? He, obviously, he doesn't enjoy pain because he felt excruciating pain. Now, we know from when he, when he was 12 that he longed to be with his father. That's why he was in the temple. This is where I belong. I belong. I know who my father is. And so he, he longed to be with the father in heaven. He looked forward to dying on the cross, rising from the dead, and then being able to go back to heaven with his father and enjoying that perfect relationship he had enjoyed for eternity past. But there's more to that. There's more to this. He also longs for the disciples. He longs to have another meal with them one day in heaven. So if you're sitting here tonight, I want, you to, I want you to think about this. Jesus Christ longs for the day that you will be with him in heaven eating of this meal. It may be a crass way of putting it, but Jesus looks forward to your death. He, obviously, you know, to live is Christ and to die is gain, so we live our lives and we strive for Christ, but the goal is to be with Jesus, Right? That's our goal. He wants to be in heaven with you. He wants to eat around the table with you. And he wants you to be holy and to be perfect and to have your glorified body and to be able to enjoy our presence forever. If you go to John 17, I'd like you to turn there real quick. I want you to see Jesus is gonna go out from this meal. He's gonna go spend some time in prayer to the Lord, to the Father. He's gonna say some pretty fascinating words here. In John 17, you could start in verse 13. There's so much here. In verse 13, he says, but now, talking to the Father, Jesus, talking to the Father, he says, now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have joy, may have my joy made full in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Look at this. He includes us in verse 20. Look, he says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. The disciples preached the gospel, right? They shared the gospel with others who would share the gospel with others all the way down, trickle down all the way to you sitting here tonight. That they may all be one, verse 21, even as you, Father, are in me 
and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Now look at this. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Look at verse 24. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you have loved me before the foundation of the world. Where does Jesus want his disciples? He doesn't want them on earth. He's worried for them on earth. So much trouble and trials and sin and persecution. He wants his disciples in heaven with him, but not just his disciples. He wants his disciples, 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 all the way down to me and you. Jesus' greatest desire on earth was to be in heaven with the Father and with all of his children. That's what his desire was. And we're called to be like Jesus as his children, as his followers, as his disciples. We should long to be with Christ. And Jesus is omnipresent, but his body is in one place at one time. And he is alive. He's got blood in his veins. He eats. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's not here. And the Lord's Supper is a reminder to check your desire. You picture a dinner table, and you have a dinner table. And just like the mother I read about this week, that every Easter Sunday prepares a meal and sets up a a seat for her son who died in the military and and just to honor him and and respect him and remember him she sets up that place every single easter sunday there's a very uh, present reality every time we take the lord's supper isn't there there's a seat missing at the table we're about to take the lord's supper and jesus isn't here yes he's in us yes he's omnipresent but physically he's in heaven and the bible tells us that he won't eat with us or the disciples, the Passover meal until the millennial kingdom. He's not here. Every time you take the Lord's Supper, it should, it should tug on the heartstrings of your heart, I mean your heartstrings that he's not here. It's, it's a sad time a little bit. It's a longing for that day that we get to eat with Christ. It's a stark reminder that though it is a time of thankfulness to our Savior for dying for us, on the cross. It's a reminder that he's missing. The Lord himself, he isn't here in his body. He's in heaven. He's highly exalted. But we are here without him. And he left us in in good hands with the Holy Spirit. There's nothing to be worried about because of this. But there is a a, a check on our desires, right? Do we long for heaven or do we long for this earth? What What do we desire most? Jesus says it so clearly here. He, this is the last time he's gonna eat with them of this meal until the millennial kingdom. He's in heaven. And there one day we will eat with him and we'll have a wedding feast like no other. And so I must ask you tonight, what is your greatest desire? What is your greatest desire? What do you desire most? 
if you're honest, it's so easy, it's so easy to be distracted by, by this life, to have our affections pulled in every direction, except from the one that they, they should be focused on. Like Lot's wife, we're tempted to look back at the world when our eyes should be fixed on Christ. Sometimes we even, we walk backwards as we walk up to, to, towards Christ. We walk backwards towards the world. Is Christ your desire? Do you desire to be with Christ? The Lord's Supper is a reminder about a wedding feast that is coming. We just sang some incredible words. Uh, Visions of rapture now burst on my sight. Watching and waiting. Looking above. Fanny Crosby wrote those words. Do you know what was fascinating about Fanny Crosby? She was blind. Those are some incredible words coming from a blind person who had never seen before, right? And yet she, she knew the word and she, she knew Jesus and, and she, could, she could picture him better than a, than, than a lot of us can because her desires were to be with Christ in heaven. She didn't care about this world. She wanted to be with him. Second, the Lord's Supper reminds us of our dependence. As we take the Lord's Supper, it's an opportunity to do a checkup on, on what we depend on. Look at what he says in verse 17. He says, and when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. In verse 16, he mentions that this word, he says this word fulfilled. He says, he says, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And in just one day, he's gonna be fulfilling the Passover. And this is an incredible moment because tonight he brings an end to the Passover and begins the Lord's Supper. And sure, even the, even the Passover was a reminder. A reminder, not just that the Lord had rescued Israel, but it was a reminder about what we see in, in Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin is death. Passover is a celebration of God saving the Israelites. But it's more than that. You guys remember Moses and, and the delivery of of. Israel and the 10 plagues and every plague uh, that, that came about and how, they, how serious they were and how devastating they were. And finally came the 10th plague. And the 10th plague was probably the most devastating of all. It was the death of every firstborn in all the country of Egypt. And so God tells Moses that this is coming and that the Lord will send the angel the destroying angel, the Bible says. We call him the angel of death, but it's called the destroying angel to come and to kill every firstborn in the land of Egypt. Have you ever thought about the fact that God called the Israelites to put blood over their door as well? Why did the Israelites have to be included in that? 
They weren't the ones enslaving people. They were the ones who were enslaved. They weren't the ones who took all the firstborns and killed them like Pharaoh did when he killed all the firstborns of Israel. And he would have, including Moses, if he could have got his hands on him, but Pharaoh's daughter found him in, a, in the water. It's fascinating that the Israelites as well, if they didn't put the blood on their door, that the angel of death would have destroyed every firstborn that there was, even for the Israelites. Well, think about this. The, the angel of destruction knew who the firstborn was in the home. He was discerning enough to know which one of these people in this, in this room, in this house, is a firstborn child, right? So he's discerning enough to know who's an Israelite, who's an Egyptian, who's a firstborn, who's not a firstborn. And yet, the Israelites are called to put blood on their door as well. And there's an incredible lesson that we can get from this, and that is that everyone deserves death. Every single person deserves death for their sin. It doesn't matter who it is, whether they're Egyptians, Israelites, Americans, or Italians. They all deserve death for their sin. And judgment for sin the righteous requirement for judgment for sin is death. Sin is that bad. And it's fascinating, you know, going to George Mason and sharing the gospel with people is I have a double, double job here because I'm talking to kids who don't care. They don't care about anything, right? And I'm having to convince them that obviously that Jesus died for them and that they have a delivery from their sin. They have a, an opportunity to have a savior. Well, but first, I've got to convince them that they're sinners. And that's the harder thing, right? That's the, to convince them that they actually need a Savior. It's not good news unless you know what the bad news is, right? If somebody gets a clean bit of, bill of health, they, they say the cancer has gone away. That's wonderful news. Well, there was bad news to begin with. The bad news was what? That they had cancer to begin with. It's the same thing with death and, and hell. The only reason heaven is sweet is because hell is bad. Hell is terrible. The only reason why it's so cool to hear the words, as far as the east is from the west, so far have you taken our sins from us. It's because we understand how bad our sin is. Sin is that bad, and that's what it comes down to. Everybody I talk to, every false religion I encounter, it all comes down to the fact that they don't think that their sin is that bad. If they think that works can, can, can save them, that works can, can cover sin, then they're saying, what are they saying? They're saying, my sin is overcomable. It's overcomable. I can, I can do stuff to be able to get rid of it, to be able to appease God. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that one sin against the holy God deserves an eternity in hell. Sin is that bad. And the beauty that we learn from the Exodus is that the death that you deserve doesn't have to be yours. Even the Israelites, who were the, the victims in this case, deserve death because their sin was, was just as serious as the Egyptians. Their sin was a sin against God. And here they are, they deserve death. But God gives them an opportunity to overcome this, this you know, momentary tense plague and he introduces the thought that there can be a substitute for our sin. And ultimately, 
The only one who can deliver us is Jesus Christ, who is the perfect substitute. Isn't that, that should be the passion of our lives. And, uh, you know, as the, in my new role, my desire is, is that you, first of all, that everybody that I encounter, everybody in church, everybody outside of church, would know that there's a judgment day coming, right? I want to prepare them for the day that they stand before God. And that's when we went to Cuba this summer. That's, that's what I walked into. The, I walked into every home and I would say the words, I want to prepare you for the day you stand before God. I want you to be ready for that day. And then I would go into the gospel. And the point is, if you're gonna stand before God alone, you're gonna be judged. And the judgment you're gonna get is an eternity away from him in hell. That's how bad sin is. And my passion in, in my life is to prepare people to, for that day and understanding that there is somebody who can help them stand before God and who can take away their sin. And the only one who qualifies is Jesus. Jesus was God and man. He, he lived a perfect life and died on the cross. And most of all, he rose from the dead and is currently alive. He's the only savior, you know, out of all the religions in the world. He's the only savior that is alive right now. He rose from the dead. There was a guy in my office recently, a, a Muslim guy who said he was recently saved. And that's what, that's what, something that really made him trust in Jesus Christ, is that he's alive. He's alive right now. He said, Muhammad is dead. Muhammad is dead. He can't save me. He said, but Jesus is alive. He can save me. And I pray that the passion of your life would be as well, not only to be ready for the day of judgment for yourself, but that you would help others understand their need to have a lawyer, to have an advocate before the Father who, can, who actually is qualified. It can't be another man, only a man, because man is sinful. They've sinned one time, they deserve an eternity in hell. We need someone who qualifies, and that is Jesus Christ. And Jesus says he is going to suffer on the cross for our sins. And in order to, in order to get to heaven, you need to depend on Jesus Christ for your salvation in every way. This is a call to dependence. This is a call to remind you about your dependence on what Christ did for you. And if in Hebrews chapter 10, it's, it's, it's an incredible passage. He, he, he walks through why the sacrificial system is over. Why Jesus doesn't, why do we don't need an animal to continually die for us. And in chapter 10, verse four of Hebrews, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it says it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me, and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Look at verse, if you, Listen to verse 10 of chapter 10 of Hebrews. He says, By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Once and for all. Jesus Christ, in one split second, in an instantaneous moment, was able to satisfy God's wrath for so many people 
Anybody who puts their faith in Jesus, in that instance, he's able to wipe away their sin. He doesn't need to die again. He doesn't need to die the next Sunday and the next Sunday and the next Sunday like the lambs had to do, continually dying and never appeasing God's wrath. Jesus Christ was able to, in one split second, appease God's wrath that we deserved. It's, a, it's blasphemy to say that Jesus must continue to die over and over again. That's, that's maximizing man's sin, minimizing Jesus' ability to justify sinners. Every time we say that Jesus must continue dying, that Jesus must, must be resurrected and then die again, and when we take the bread and wine that he continually is killed again, it, it's, it maximizes our sin over the last week, for, first of all. But it also makes us dependent on, on the Lord's Supper rather than on Jesus Christ himself. Because now we're having to come here every single Sunday and we have to take this bread and wine and if we don't, we can't have our sins forgiven. Well, that, that slaps Jesus in the face. Jesus says, I give up my body once and for all. Doesn't need to continue dying. Comes down to humility. I read today about a man who went to Augustine the famous theologian, and he said, what is the first step in conversion? Augustine said, humility. He said, what's the second step in conversion? Augustine said, humility. What's the third step in conversion? Augustine said, humility. It comes down to humility. It comes down to the Pharisee and the tax collector, right? The Pharisee stands there thinking he can save himself, he can do things in order to get to heaven. The tax collector Beating his chest says, be merciful to me, the sinner. That's what it comes down to. The only difference between me and somebody who stands before God who doesn't know Christ is humility versus pride. And that sounds prideful to say. But if you're a Christian, what you say, what you've declared from your mouth when you were baptized, you told everybody, I'm a sinner, I deserve hell for my sin, and I desperately need Jesus Christ to save me, right? That's a humble thing to say, I think. And you can't say that on your own. No human being can say that on their own unless God himself helped them say that. Showed them their sin to the point where they're able to see their sin for what it is and say, I deserve hell for my sin. For one sin, and we sin thousands more times in our lives. If God is going to get glory from our lives, then it must be through him getting all the credit for our salvation. And we, be de- we depend on him for our salvation. And that's, that's the idea here. It's dependence. Dependence on the Lord for our salvation. Dependence on the Lord for sustaining us. And, and the fascinating, think about this. Jesus is the one who wants us to take the Lord's Supper continually. And we do it about once, I think it's once a month here at Emmanuel. Why does he want us to do it once a month or once every couple months or once every couple weeks or some churches do it once a week? Why does he want us to do it so often? It seems, it seems ritualistic, doesn't it? He doesn't think very highly of our memory, does he? Right? Why does he want us to do it all the time like this? 
He says in Hebrews 10, he suffered once and for all. He doesn't die over and over again. So the reason that we come isn't so that we can get some kind of salvation from this. He knows. And we saw it in John 17. He knows how prone to wander his followers are. Prone to leave the Lord we love. We're so prone to forget about him. When circumstances in life overwhelm us, it is so easy to neglect our Savior. And yet he calls us to trust and to remember him. He wants to tell us that he gives water that will make us never be thirsty again. He gives us bread that will make us never be hungry again. The world gives us bread that makes us hungry after two minutes. I've been on a diet recently. I know all about hunger right now. Jesus gives food, gives water that makes you eternally satisfied. And that's the reminder that we have each time we take the Lord's Supper, isn't it? We get to remember about our dependence on the Lord, not only for our salvation, but our sanctification as well. I was talking to a a young man at George Mason, and, and I was trying to explain to him what I explained just earlier about the fact that Jesus Christ died once and for all. He doesn't need to continue dying and over and over again. And he said, I hear what you're saying, I even understand it, but I just cannot give up the mass because it, it makes me feel good. It makes me, I, I feel like I need it. I said, what do you need it for? And he didn't have an answer. He's finally said, for my salvation. I need it for my salvation. Every time you take communion, you're declaring that your sins are already forgiven. You don't, you don't need to take communion for your salvation, but you do for your sanctification. You declare total dependence on the Lord for your salvation and total dependence on the Lord for your sanctification. You're saying to the Lord, yes, I do need reminders. Yes, I do need continual reminders about how much I am dependent on you. And it's a reminder as well about the fact that on the day of judgment, when God's wrath should consume you, it's not going to because Jesus is gonna stand in the way between you and the Father. Third, the Lord's Supper demands total devotion to the Lord. As we take the Lord's Supper, it's our opportunity for a checkup on our devotion to the Lord. And it's a fascinating three verses here. He says, but behold, The hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. But woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. Man. He's sitting at the table and there is one among the among these disciples who's gonna betray him. And we don't know the timing if, if he took the, the Lord if he took the bread and the wine or if he didn't. I think he did, and he didn't leave till after this. But here he is, sitting at the table, and we all know his name. Nobody has been named Judas since then, right? But I think that the reaction of the disciples in verse 23 is 
is fascinating. They began to question one another. Which one of them it could be who was going to do this? When they find out that it's Judas, they're going to be shocked. Their jaws will drop to the ground. They're not going to expect it. They're not going to expect Judas. Judas? How in the world is it Judas? That's what they're going to say to themselves. They're arguing amongst themselves. They have no clue who it is. That's fascinating. They're shocked that Jesus would, Judas would do this. Here's a man who left everything to follow Christ. Jesus encounters several people who, who, ask, who say they want to go bury their father first. In other words, they want to get the inheritance from their dad. Or they want to go back and say bye to their family first, which really means I want to go back so they convince me not to do it. Just continually, he's encountering people who, who will not leave. They will not give up everything to follow Christ. And here's Judas who has and will. He possibly even casted out some demons. He was with them always, every moment, for three years. People are shocked that he would. They're shocked to find out that he was not truly devoted to Jesus because with his actions, he went further than so many people do. He actually followed him for three years. I wish I could be able to, you know, as a, as a pastor for 10 minutes, right? I, I wish I could see who's a Christian and who's not. I wish I could, I wish there was a little pointer that pastors got as soon as they became pastors that they could see who was a Christian and who wasn't. I'm sure many of you would, would love that too. Not too long ago, I, I found a, a note on the door of my house. And it said something like, I've made my decision. I've made my decision and I'm not gonna follow Christ anymore. And it was a person we had spent many, many hours with. And the note didn't come as a surprise, right? Because a few weeks before, they had posted an inappropriate picture on social media of them and, and, and a boyfriend. And I, You know, you look back and you say, okay, she was baptized. She became a member. She read the whole Bible, the whole Bible from start to finish in 10 weeks at our immersion program. She would go out and do evangelism every week. Spent hours, a hundred hours in the classroom with, with our pastors here at Emmanuel. Hours in the homes of, of elders and, and many of you in this room. And then I got that note on my door saying, I made my decision. It's not you, it's me. I just, I'm, I'm walking away from the Lord. Now, I say this not because I lost hope. I definitely, I definitely believe that God can, can save anyone and that people have times of walking away and have times of, of giving in to sin. But I wish I could know. I wish I could know who will walk away. I spent countless hours with 
college students, and so many of you have spent countless hours with family members and other people in your life who eventually just give up and walk away. I wish there was the sign that said, genuinely save, you know, not genuinely save. You know, teachable person, not teachable person. It would save so much time, right? But we aren't privy to that information. So what do we do? What can we do? Well, we have an opportunity every month to take the Lord's Supper and to check our own hearts. And that's what it comes down to. Yes, you know, you know the Christian life is a, is a life of, uh, in community with other believers. That's why we have church. That's why we come together. But it's a personal relationship with the Lord as well. One day when you stand before God, you're not going to stand with a group, your favorite friends from church. You're going to stand there alone by yourself. You better have somebody who can save you. And so what can, what can a pastor do? What, can, what he can do is he can preach the gospel and he can encourage people to examine their own hearts because ultimately a pastor cannot check people's hearts. People have to do that on their own and I have to do it about my own heart. I better be preaching to myself right now because every time I take the Lord's Supper, I need to be examining my own heart to know and to examine whether I truly am devoted to Christ or not. I can't do it for you. You can't do it for me. You must do it in your own heart each and every time you do the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a time of reflection where we challenge our devotion. We set our hearts to forsake the world and to fully trust in him alone for our salvation. So how did your checkup go? As you came to the to Dr. Lord's Supper, how did it go? Do you truly desire Christ? Do you long for the day that you get to be with him forever? Are you dependent on Christ in, in your everyday life? Are you truly dependent on him for all things? Do you go to him rather than anything in this world, rather than a spouse, a loved one, TV, food, whatever it is? Do you go to Christ or do you go to this world? And ultimately, are you truly devoted to Jesus Christ and all things in your life? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are thankful for Jesus Christ. We're thankful for the fact that you were willing to send your son to die on the cross for our sins. And you loved us so much that you were willing to sacrifice your own son so that we could experience full joy, real joy, something that this world cannot offer us. Lord, cause us to be completely dependent on you. Cause us to desire you above all things. Cause us to be completely devoted to you in our hearts. Lord, thank you for the Lord's Supper and the opportunity to be able to examine ourselves and examine our hearts to see we truly love you. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website, 
I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.